The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. All right, we are in Ruth. We got to finish up our study on the spiritual disciplines last week. And so we're going to begin our journey through the book of Ruth, and that should take us all the way through the rest of this year. And then we are going to jump into the book of James after the new year, uh, sometime in probably late January. And um, Ruth is an exciting book because uh, if it really is a part of a historical section of our Old Testament, um, but it also gives us a picture of what life was like in the midst of a tragic time in Israel. Now, the story of Ruth is probably a familiar one to you if you've been at church for any extended period of time. There's lots of Bible studies on the book of Ruth. And we always hear about the kinsman redeemer and looking for your Boaz and all those kinds of things. So we probably are familiar with characters. We're familiar with themes, but probably there's very few of us who have done a verse by verse study throughout the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth is one of only two books in the Bible that is named after women. Also, interestingly in that is the absence of God's voice in those books. Now, Esther is the other book, and God's not mentioned in there, and God doesn't speak in the book of Esther at all. In the book of Ruth, God's name is mentioned several times, but God never speaks in the entire book. But what we do see is the providence of God working in the background of what's happening there. And it's very interesting because, like I said, it's a very dark time in the nation of Israel. This is a time where they keep falling into rebellion. They haven't had the establishment of a kingship yet. And so Ruth is this picture, this little, if you will, a microcosm of what is happening behind the scenes when everything looks horrible, when everything looks tragic, yet God is working behind the scenes to bring about his plan that he promised from the very beginning. When we look at the structure of you, uh, Ruth, when we look at how it's put together, the literary components of it, some authors have said this is the loveliest complete work on a small scale. Another author says no poet in the world has written a more beautiful short story. And so it is a short story. It gets to the point very quickly, gives us a few details in the background, and it kind of carries us on this emotional journey. And it's much of a romantic story. Uh, another author says it this way, it deals with unimportant people and unimportant matters, but it deals with them in such a way as to show that God is active in the affairs of men. He works his purpose out and blesses them that trust him. So the story of Ruth is this powerful picture of an ordinary family with the ordinary problems of that day and time, and yet it shows God's providence in those ordinary circumstances. It doesn't start, start like a lot of other great stories that we think of, like Charles Dickens when he says, it was the best of times and the worst of times. But yet it was, right? Or Star Wars in a galaxy far, far away. Now, Ruth is more like a very real description. And it depicts for us the reality of life in the times in which it took place. This was a time, and it tells us there in the first verse, this was the time when the judges ruled in Israel. This was a time when Israel was in this constant cycle that the book of Judges reminds us of. There was a time of peace. And then 
the people got too comfortable in the time of peace and they were tempted to kind of go after the pleasures of the world and they ended up in full rebellion against God. That rebellion brought judgment upon them. That judgment usually invited their enemies in and the enemies came in and would take their land, sometimes take the people, and then they would repent because they realized the error of their ways. God would send in a judge to rescue them from their enemies. The judge would drive out the enemies and they would experience peace again for a little while and then they would go into rebellion and then judgment would come and then they would repent and God would send a judge and they would experience peace and then they would go back into their rebellion and, the, and it's this constant cycle through the book of Judges over and over and over again and the sad reality of the book of Judges is that it paints for us that Israel had become just as bad as the pagan nations that surrounded them. The book is about so much more than just this story of Ruth. The book is more than just a love story. Ultimately, this book is about a foreign girl who is being redeemed by someone who did not have to redeem her. Okay, so with that being the background, let's jump in and let's look at the first seven verses. Let's read them in context and then we'll look at them uh, verse by verse. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. Say that with me. Elimelech, that's right. And the name of his wife was Naomi. That's a little easier. And the name of his two sons were Malon, say that with me, Malon, and Kilion is the way you pronounce that next one. So Malon, and say it with me, Kilion, okay? They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So these first few verses here lay the foundation for the rest of the story. And it also lays out for us the foundation of the application of this story to our own stories, right? So oftentimes we are much like Naomi in this story. We are people who have left the kingdom of God and instead we have chosen to dwell in a foreign kingdom. We have also gotten used to this earthly kingdom. We've grown accustomed to the way things are done here. So much so that it seems like we are more citizens of this earthly kingdom than we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom that God has redeemed us to be a part of. And in other ways, maybe we're more like Ruth and the result of, of being foreigners or being separated from God as she went to Judah, maybe we experience the pain and the loss that she went through as well. We experience suffering. We experience hardship. We experience tragedy. Now look again at what it says in verse 1. 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now notice that in verse 1, it tells us when the story of Ruth took place. It says there, in the days when the judges ruled. Now it's very important for us to understand how the book of Ruth is related to the judges because it is flowing out of what's happening largely from the book of Judges. Matter of fact, when, when these two books were first formed together, put into the canon, many of them believed that they were one book. So the Judges and Ruth were kind of compiled together because Ruth is giving you a little microcosm of what's happening during the time of the Judges. Now, we don't know exactly when in the time period of the Judges because that covered over 200 years, but it seemed most commentators believe that it was probably towards the end of that time. Okay, so what I want to do right now is I want to show you one of those videos as well. One of the comes from the Bible Project, but I don't want to show you the one for Ruth. I want to show you the one for Judges. I think it's very important that you have an overview of the cycle of rebellion that Israel was going through so that you get an understanding of what's happening at the time that Ruth is living out her story. Okay, so watch this video here. It lasts about seven minutes, but it gives you an overview the book of, of the Judges. book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the Promised Land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. 
So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well, he's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a God and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore. And that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. 
The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of First Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. Interesting, isn't it? Makes you want to go read it now, doesn't it? Like, I want to read those stories. But it does give you the background of what Ruth is all about. Now think about that for a moment. Uh, is that another movie coming on? <laughs> like I need some popcorn now. Um, but it tells us that in that time period, God is bringing his story to the front. So it's during the period of the judges, during that constant rebellion, it looks like there's no hope for these people. And yet behind the scenes, God is being faithful to bring about not only the family of David, but ultimately the family of the Messiah. Because what you're gonna find is through the family of Ruth, Jesus eventually comes, okay? So from this story that we're going to study, we are studying the genealogy of Jesus. This lady, Ruth, becomes the great, 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 I don't know how many times, grandmother of Jesus. And so behind the scenes of what looks like it's hopeless, so dark, God is bringing light. And when so many are turning away from him, what is he doing but drawing one family back to where they're supposed to be? And so that is the background of it. The time period is the darkest time period in Israel's history. One of the most wicked, one of the most rebellious, one of the most obstinate times in the history of those people, maybe even in the entire Bible. The nation of Israel surrounded by all sorts of wickedness, all sorts of false gods of these other nations, and they are adopting those practices instead of living for God's kingdom. They joined in the wickedness. They joined into the depravity of these other nations. The book of Judges concludes by saying, as he pointed out for us, 21, verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, okay? Now, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because that's important as you transition into the book of Ruth. The book of Judges is ultimately when we abandon God, we do what's right in our own eyes. Now the stage has been set. Again, look at verse one in Ruth. It tells us that there was this famine in Bethlehem. Now, the story doesn't tell us why there was a famine, but historically we understand that famines were seen as a judgment of God poured out on the people for their rebellion. We see that over and over again. Matter of fact, the law of Moses, specifically in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, stated that people rebelled against God and they would rebel against his commands and that they would bring on themselves destruction and devastation. Their enemies would come in and destroy their crops. The enemies would come in and occupy their land. We see this over 
and over again in the book of Judges. But it also states that there would be a lack of rain or a cutting off of the rains, which would uh, bring on famine on the land. So as we understand that the book of Ruth is situated in the time of the judges, it is most likely that this famine was seen as indicative of God's judgment on them, of judgment on Israel, because they were rebelling against him. They were turning and pursuing the gods of other nations. Verse 1 also tells us that there was this man from Bethlehem who took his family and moved them to the country of Moab to escape the famine. Now, there's some very interesting and maybe even ironic things that the writer is pointing out to us that if we were the first readers of Ruth, we would have known them just by his writing it. But because we are so far removed from this time period, we must understand the nuances of the words that he's using here. First of all, he tells us that they are from Bethlehem. What does the word Bethlehem mean in Hebrew? It means house of bread. So there is a famine in the land, and there are people who are leaving the house of bread to go and try and find food somewhere else. That would draw our attention to this. This was normally a very fertile region. This was a place where food was abundant, yet at this time, it's gone. Ironically, there is this famine in the house of bread. So this man picks up his family and he moves them about 50 miles southeast across the Jordan River, across the Dead Sea to the country of Moab. Now look at this map with me, if you will. Now I don't know how, if you're close enough to the uh, screen, you can see that. But down in the red letters, that's Moab, okay? Now if you look to the upper left-hand side, you will see Bethlehem. So from Bethlehem to Moab, they're moving about 50 miles. You think 50 miles? Really? You can have a famine and, and the people have to go 50 miles and all of a sudden they have food? Well, yeah, because they don't have mass transit. They don't have 18 wheelers hauling food all over the place, okay? So you could think about if we had, you know, famine in Georgia, people would have to walk a really long ways to somewhere else where maybe it has been raining and there is food growing. And that day and time, it was a big deal to pick up and to move even 50 miles to walk that far because it would take you a long time to do that. And you can't just leave all of your crops or all of your animals or whatever unattended. So a lot of times it necessitated these people moving for periods of time. So they become sojourners in this land. Now, it is Bethlehem crossing over, coming down into this, what we would call the foreign land of Moab. Now, the country of Moab began with the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. So this goes all the way back to a story in Genesis. Do you remember when God brought down destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah? And right before that, he saved Lot and his family. But as he was saving them out, his wife turned back and she got caught up in the destruction. And so it was just Lot and his two girls and they fled to the mountains. Well, the story says that his daughters thought, you know what? The whole world is over. It's done. You know what? And we don't have any children. So one of the daughters, the oldest daughter, thought she would have a good plan. So she got her father drunk, she lied with him, and she became pregnant by him. And so that child's name was Moab, and he became the father of the Moabites. So you can see right there, that whole nation begins in a really bad situation. So when we see it unfold even further, we know that there is also a history 
of Moab and Israel. The Moabites were also the ones that refused to let Israel pass through when they were rescued from Egypt. God was bringing them through the wilderness into the land. It was the Moabites who said, no, you're not coming through this way. And so they had to take this long detour around to begin the campaign to take the promised land. Okay, so the Moabites have that in their background. Also, in one point of, uh, of Israel's history, the women of Moab seduced the men of Israel, and subsequently, God punished the Israelites for that. This punishment led to this bitterness that Israel always had towards the Moabites, and they excluded them from having any part of the assembly of God. At one point in the period of the judges, the king of Moab had been oppressing the people of Israel in Judges chapter 3. So those reading the book of Ruth would have been very familiar with this very hostile history that has gone on between Israel and Moab. Those reading this book would have thought, wow, this is amazing that this man is leaving Bethlehem and he's moving into this community of Moab. Yet despite all of this, this man and his wife and his sons made this move from Bethlehem to this foreign country because they needed food. First, what, what we see is that there's this indication this family's move is only temporary. In other words, they weren't intending to go there and live there forever. They were saying, you know what, there's this famine in this land. Let's go and sojourn for a while in the land of Moab. Let's take care of ourselves, and then eventually we'll come back to this place. Now, look how it continues in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. In Judah, I'm sorry. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. So verse 2 tells us the names of the people that are involved in this family. Now the first one we have there, let's look at these characters specifically. The first guy that's mentioned is the guy who's the father. His name is Elimelech. The irony of the book of Ruth continues. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. So it was not enough for Elimelech to be fleeing the house of bread, but literally his name means, my God is king. The man whose name translates to, my God is king, is running to another king, to a different kingdom than God's kingdom. His departure for Moab reflects the own doubts that he has that his name proclaims. As one author states, Elimelech's very name should have given him pause, yet it appears God is no more his king than those who live around him. For he did what was right in his own eyes and left Israel and headed to Moab. So do you see why it's important to understand the theme of Judges? Because what he's saying there is this is what it was like for a lot of people. They did what was right in their own eyes. Even though God had been very clear, do not go to these foreign countries. Do not take your families there. Do not take foreign women as wives. 
Yet exactly this man is doing what's right in his own eyes. There's a famine. We need to go trust in someone else. God's not going to provide for us. We got to provide for ourselves. We got to do what we need to do. And so that's exactly how this story begins. By fleeing to Moab, Elimelech designed his own solution instead of calling on God to be merciful. Instead of bowing before the Almighty in repentance of the sins that plagued the nation and plagued his own family during the dark days of the judges. One author says it this way, instead of recognizing the famine to be punishment for the nation's sin and repenting of their spiritual infidelity, they left their people and their land for the unclean land of Moab. So the name of Elimelech starts us off in that whole direction, right? Now let's look at his wife. Her name is Naomi. Now, Naomi is the main character of the book. Even though the name of the book is Ruth, the story is really about her and her situation and God being faithful to her despite all that's happened in her life. So, she's the mother of the family. The story is about her tragedy. It's about her dilemma. Her name actually means pleasant, lovely, delightful. Her name also becomes ironic because later on in the story, she's going to adopt another name that actually means the opposite of this because she feels like her name currently is inappropriate for her situation. So she adopts a name that she feels is more representative of how God has treated her. Elimelech's sons are named Malon and Kilion. Now, of all things that you can name your sons, this should be at the bottom of the list. Malon means to be weak or sick. And Kilion means failing, pining, or even death or annihilation. Their names literally mean sickly and dying, which is exactly what happens to them. They become sick and they die. Now, can you imagine trying to get dates with names like that? I mean, no wonder they had to go to Moab to get wives, right? I mean, you think about that. Hi, my name is Ebola, and this is my brother, Mad Cow Disease. We have contagious personalities, by the way. You ladies come here often? I mean, I mean, it's just crazy. Now, a lot of people, let's, let's just say that a lot of people believe that the author of Ruth uh, has put names in here after the fact to tell the story. We don't know that that's true or not. Some people assume that these names were so appropriate to their situations that they were renamed, in a sense, to protect the innocent. Or they were renamed to create more uh, drama to the story. I, we don't know if that's true or not, but let's continue looking at verse 2. Notice that we're also told that the members of his families were Ephrathites. Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Now, Ephrath was an earlier name for Bethlehem. Okay. Now, I think what's happening here is it's telling us that Elimelech's family had been in Bethlehem for a very long time. It would be like us today saying, uh, oh, you know so-and-so, you know that family, they're old mobile money. 
You ever heard somebody say something like that? What do you mean? They've been here forever, right? Their families have, have, have been in the industry here. They've had a business, whatever it is. They've been here forever, and they've passed it down for generation to generation to generation. That is similar to what this would mean by the author mentioning it here. In other words, they were entrenched families in Bethlehem, which again, if we understand that, we're going, oh my gosh, what did it really take for these people who are entrenched in this place, who had been there for generations, generations to uproot themselves and leave Bethlehem and go to this place of Moab. So again, the story is just growing in its intensity of what's happening here. Verse 3 tells us that Elimelech dies. At this point, we would say, well, Naomi and her sons have an option of going home. They have a choice where they can decide to stay or they can decide to go back to Bethlehem. And they decide to stay in Moab. Another commentator says this, they still rated their prospects more highly in Moab than in Judea, Judah. They felt more at home in the land of compromise than in the land of promise. So this is an important truth. I believe it's also a warning that once we take the road of rebellion, it's really hard to turn back, isn't it? And it's usually when we take that road of rebellion, it is a road that is paved so smoothly and there are no way signs, no stopping points. There are no obstacles. It's just so easy to continue to go down that road. C.S. Lewis once said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You know, that should give us great warning in our own lives, shouldn't it? I mean, you think about the own devastation that we experience in our lives. A lot of it comes from wanting to take the easiest route, the one with the least amount of suffering, the one with the least amount of difficulty, the one that just continues going and I can go there and you know what? And we, give, we never give really any credence to where's this road taking me? Where does it end? Well, where am I gonna be? Where, where, where am I gonna be at the end of this destination? But you know what? We think so much on the temporal. We think for right now, this is what I need. For right now, this is where I've got to be. For right now, this is what I've got to have. But we never consider that if you have this now, what are you going to have to have tomorrow? And if you have to have tomorrow, what are you going to have to have the next? So a lot of times the road of rebellion is very similar to the road to addiction. It's one thing that leads to another, that leads to another, that leads to another. And we just think to ourselves, well, I'll deal with this one day down the road, but for right now, I'm right here. And then all of a sudden it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And then all of a sudden where we never intended to go, we can never get back to where we came from. And that's the warning that we see in the story. As they made this journey, not intended to be residents of this place. Now, all of a sudden they've buried their father there. The two sons are marrying women from this place. And now all of a sudden you just see that this story, they're becoming entrenched in this foreign land. Even if we get to the point that we want to go home, a lot of times the biggest obstacle for us to go back is our own pride, isn't it? I mean, I see this a lot of times when, when we deal with marital problems or addictions in pastoral counseling, even in my own life. Uh, when I have a problem with my wife and I know that I'm right and she's wrong, and then later on I realize that I'm wrong and she was right, 
it's really hard to admit that. It's really hard to say, you know what? I was wrong. As much as I was convinced I was right in the beginning, I know that I was wrong. And a lot of times the same thing is true in addiction. It's, either to it's easy to continue on in secrecy than it is to admit, man, I've got a problem and I need help. In our relationships, it's easier to just isolate ourselves in marriage than it is to come together and say, man, this whole thing has fallen apart. We've got to do something. Isn't it interesting that it always seems easier to stay in a place of pain and emptiness than it is to confess that we've been looking for the right thing, but we've been looking for it in the wrong places. You see, sin, here's a good definition of sin. You can write this down. Sin is a legitimate need handled in an illegitimate way. Sin is a legitimate need that's handled in an illegitimate way. In other words, a lot of times, whatever it is that leads us into sin, it's a legitimate need. It's a desire, a passion, a need, or something that God gave to us. It becomes sin when we try to meet that need in a way God never designed for that need to be met. So it's a legitimate need that ends up being met in an illegitimate way. And so in verse 4, the author tells us that Malon and Kilion, who are still living in the land of Moab, take for themselves Moabite wives. And they are introduced, or we are introduced now in this story to these women. We just don't know a whole lot about the Moabite language. So their names are a little harder for us to understand than the Hebrew names that precede them. But their names are Orpah and Ruth, and they are a bit obscured. Orpah seems to be from the same root word that is very similar to the Hebrew word, which is for neck. Could be associated with the fact that later on in the story, you're going to see that uh, as they are journeying for Judah, uh, Naomi comes to this conclusion of, you know what, there's really not a lot of future for these two girls in Judah. So she gives them the opportunity to turn around and go back to Moab. And, and, and Orpah is one who turns and goes back. And so some people believe they gave her that name because she turns her neck and goes back to Moab. We don't know that for sure or not. It's possible that this was a name, Hebrew name, uh, or associated with a Hebrew name that was given after the story, like we were talking about with the others, that it was a name that was associated more with the moral of the story than it was the person's actual name. Ruth is probably the most obscure name in the entire book. It could mean friendship. It could mean female companion. In its most basic form, it would seem to relate to something like to soak, irrigate, or refresh, which is kind of odd as well, right? Either way, one author puts it this way. The author of Ruth is careful to use Moabite names, the names of foreigners, to stress that these were foreign women from a foreign land marrying into a Hebrew or Israelite family. Look at verse 5. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So devastation. I mean, a prestigious family in Bethlehem. They're going to leave for a short time during the famine and go find some resources in another place. But we'll come back. And then all of a sudden, destruction hits this family. The husband is dead. 
the two sons are dead. And so this widow is left with these two girls who are not even from her nationality. And that's the only connection that she has in this world. So among the people of Israel, descended from Jacob, what we have to understand is there are three levels within the family or family relationships. They have tribes, they have clans, and they have families. Now, when we talk about the tribes, we're talking about Jacob's sons, or his name was turned to Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, there are actually 13 tribes, if you can include the Levites, who didn't actually have a land uh, given to them. But Joseph, remember, gave his portion to two others. So there are 13 names that are associated with it, but 12 tribes, okay? So, when we think about tribe, that's what we're talking about. When we think about clans, we're talking about groups within the tribes. And then when we talk about families, we're talking about individual family units. Now, family was a very important element in Israel's life. The father was responsible for the spiritual and the moral well-being of his own children. The father was kind of like a priest within the family. He led the family in worship. Oftentimes he would make sacrifices on behalf of the family. He was responsible for finding husbands uh, or finding wives for his children so that they could have be husbands of other Israeli women. And only Israelites were allowed to marry Israelites, okay? That's the only thing that you could go and look for there. This understanding of family and marriage shows that Elimelech's failure on, on so many different accounts. Number one, not only had he not found them wise before going to Moab, uh, apparently he failed morally because he had failed to stress the importance that God had given to them in their law that they were not to marry foreign women, which both of his sons end up doing. The Mosaic law strictly prohibited marrying a pagan foreigner, which Ruth and Orpah would have been. The Moabites were the people of Shemosh, which was a foreign god, and they would have been included in these foreign pagans, okay? Now, another important element to this, children were a very important aspect to families in the Old Testament. They were a means of security. They were a means of provision for the family. Whereas we talk about children today as being dependents, right? Um, in their day and time, children were assets. Now, we call them dependents because they cost us a lot of money today, right? And they really never give us anything back, right? Besides the joy of the smiling faces and things of that nature. But in this day and time, you got to think when you had a child, you had an extra worker. You had someone who could go and, and help you in the field. You had someone who helped you take care of the animals. You had workers that would work within whatever the family business was. So the, the children were actually beneficial in their day and time. And not even beneficial, but needed. They were a necessity if you were to continue to build wealth into the next generation. So that's the view of children. And children were seen as an asset and a necessity. Which is why God provided for women in Naomi's situation in the law of Moses, which was called a Leverite marriage. Now, a Leverite marriage was when, in this situation, you have Elimelech and you have Naomi, right? And then Elimelech dies. And then what happens is, if Elimelech had had a brother, it would have been his responsibility to take Naomi as his wife and make sure that she had children. But the children would not be considered his children. They would be considered the children of the dead brother. 
And you say, well, that's weird. Why would that be? Because land and resources were passed down to the children. So this brother, if he dies and there are no heirs to what he has to receive, there's nowhere that it can go. So this was a way of protecting the land to be passed down from generation to generation. And we see this come up several times in the Old Testament. So the brother involved in a Leverite marriage would have been considered a redeemer. And that's where we hear this word over and over again. Matter of fact, there's a character that's going to come up here before long. And uh, his name is Boaz. And he's called the kinsman redeemer uh, over and over again, several times. So in addition to marriage, this guy might have to avenge the family reputa reputation. Uh, he might have to ensure that the family property uh, was increased to whatever the boundaries were given to them in the very beginning, that it remained within family control. And the refusal to abide by that Leverite marriage, which we see over and over again in the Old Testament that they just don't want to do it. That was seen as being dishonorable because it was the man's duty to perpetuate the family of his dead brother. So the concept of this type of marriage is a central concept to understanding the book of Ruth. Now look how it continues in verse six. Then she arose with her daughter's in law, and to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters in law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So that now has set up the story as it begins to unfold. So that's a good foundation, if you will, of understanding the concepts that we're going to be seeing over and over again throughout the study of the book of Ruth. It's an understanding of paying attention to these names and these characters, what they represent in this story, and also the journey that now is beginning where the story is really going to begin to unfold as they have now realized the tragedy. They realize there's nothing here, and now we need to go back to Bethlehem. And so now this lady has set off with her two daughters-in-law, and they have set their sights on going back to Bethlehem. So that's where verse 7 ends. Now, what I want to do is I want us to also help understand how this applies to our own life. I want us to see the gospel in this story because it shows up over and over again. Matter of fact, just as Naomi experienced pain and loss... The one thing that we know from the gospel story is that God also knows what it feels like to lose someone he loves, doesn't he? I mean, God knows what it's like to lose a son, just like Naomi experienced. But when we think about the stories, they're very different. God lost his son so that we would not have to be foreigners in a foreign land. God lost his son so that we would not have to endure the pain and loss Matter of fact, that pain and loss would not be the end of our story. See, on the cross, Christ took on all the pain and suffering of the world so that it would not be something that we would have to, to bear ourselves. Christ redeemed the brokenness in this world. He bought us with his blood so that we would no longer have to be foreigners. We would no longer have to be outcasts from his family. Christ died so that we could be redeemed so that we could be brought back into the family of God. You see, the gospel tells us that we were all foreigners, that we were all outcasts, that we were all without a home, without a family, that we all experience pain. Yet despite all of this, Christ did what was necessary to redeem us 
to restore us, to bring us out of our pain, out of our wandering. Since Christ did this for us, then we have to reflect this character of Christ to other people, always aware of the foreigners who are among us, right? I mean, think about this for a moment. Many of us do not know what it's like to be a foreigner in a strange land or a strange culture. Unless you lived up in the north and you moved down here to the south, okay? Then you probably know what it's like to, or if you've ever taken a trip to New York City, all right? Then you know what it's like maybe to be a foreigner in a foreign land or Louisiana. I mean, it just depends on who you are. But here's the thing. Sadly, in our day and time, immigrants and foreigners, they're often looked down upon um, they're often mistreated. Not just, I'm, I'm not talking about our country. I'm talking about in general throughout the world. Whenever someone is a foreigner, oftentimes people see opportunity to take advantage of people like that. It's even a big topic of conversation even in our day and time, right? In our own culture. This is what's debated in our culture over and over again in the political realm. And no matter where you fall on that political spectrum, what I think that we can agree on is this one thing. The gospel calls us as Christians to look out for those who are foreigners. Whether you are for building a wall on the southern border of the United States or against that, I think what we can agree on is that's a political thing and that's a government thing and that's a big national thing, but we don't want to confuse national politics with what we are called to do as Christians on a personal level. And so what we always have to be aware of is as Christ followers, we have to be ready to embrace foreigners. If our country says absolutely no refugees coming in, then you know what? We got to look for the foreigners among us. But if they say, oh, bring them in, then you know what? As Christians, we have to go, how can we reach these people? You see, it's not our Christian persona to say we're Americans first and then we're Christians. No, we are Christians first. And so we are always looking for opportunities to share the gospel. We are always looking for opportunities to reflect the gospel around us. Please don't get caught up in the divisiveness of politics. Don't forget that that is just a distraction away from what is real and right and true in your own life. The thing is, you know what, the ways of men and the history of man and the history of the United States, it's going to go back and forth, back and forth. The pendulum's going to keep swinging, and it may get worse and worse every time it swings, like it tends to do. But here's the thing, we can't lose sight of what we're called to be, of what we're called to do. We're not called to be divisive. We're called to embrace. Not to embrace no matter what, to embrace on the foundation of the gospel. The gospel sets our standards. The gospel is the character that we wanna reflect to the people around us. You see, everyone has had the experience at some point in their life of being an outsider. Maybe you haven't experienced being a foreigner in a foreign land or a foreign culture, but you've probably experienced being an outsider in some capacity, experiencing the pain and the brokenness and relationships whenever we experience that. You see, the world's solution to that problem is accept everyone, judge no one, affirm all behavior, and affirm all attitudes. But see, as Christ followers, we understand that we were once outsiders to God's family because of our own sin. We recognize that sin is ultimately what brings that pain and brokenness that we experience, the same thing that Naomi experienced in this story. See, Christians recognize that to solve the problem of alienation, you don't just sweep sin under the rug. 
you deal with it square on. You call it what it is. You recognize it. You deal with it in both truth and love. And that's the problem is we tend to go to one of those extremes. Either all love and accept everybody or it's all truth and cause division and hurt people. But somewhere in there, there's a balance that says this is truth and we have to operate in truth. But how in that truth can I reflect the great love and mercy and gospel of God? You see, as Christ followers, we have to understand these things. We have to understand these are the things that we are called to. We have to recognize that we have a place to play on the world stage of answering the problems that our government can't seem to answer that the world can't seem to answer, that philosophy can't seem to answer. We have the answers. Yet oftentimes we deny the very thing that we say we are by the way we act. I love how one author says it. He says, many bear the label Christian, yet their Christianity has no real impact on life-defining decisions. Just as Elimelech bore the name, my God is king, yet lived in a way that made it evident that God wasn't his king at all, the roads we choose for ourselves often make our deepest commitments plain for all to see. You see, it's not about what we say we are. It's about how we act. It's not what we proclaim about ourselves that says we're redeemed. It's the way that we love. It's the way we lead our families. It's the way we conduct ourselves. It's the way we humble ourselves. It's the way we are willing to do away with pride to say, you know what, I'm wrong. And it's okay. I understand you're wrong. I understand you're struggling with something. Just admit it so that we can get on with it and we can get some help. And let's get some healing in our lives. That's what this story is really all about. That in the tragedy that you think your life is, you haven't backed up far enough to see that God's actually working through your tragedy. You know, later on, Naomi's going to change her name and she's going to change it to Mara, which is a Hebrew word for bitterness. Because she says, the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. You know what she didn't realize? All she was looking at is her current circumstances. She never backed up to think, maybe God will be faithful to what he says he's going to do. And this lady had no idea in her current circumstances. She said, I'm bitter and God has dealt with me bitterly. Here's the grandmother of the Messiah who would save the entire world. Sometimes we're not aware that God's working in our circumstances. Sometimes the thing that captures our attention in our life blinds us from the gospel that is so working right around us. And when we miss it, we cheat ourselves of a great experience of knowing the faithfulness of God. God is faithful no matter if we are or not. And so we have to base our life on the truth of who God is. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we have set off on a journey to understand this great story. Lord, as we go through here, I pray that you would help us to identify with each one of these characters because we are, in essence, at different times in our life, all of them. Lord, I know that I've been Elimelech, knowing that you are king, yet living in a way that denies your kingship over my life. Lord, I know that I've been Naomi, just easier to stay in a foreign land and then all of a sudden tragedy strikes. Lord, as we go through here, I pray that you would remind us over and over again about how you are more familiar with our circumstances than we are. And I just pray that you would open our eyes to that truth, 
that you want to redeem us. I don't know what everyone has brought in here into this place today. I don't know what their tragic situations may be. Maybe they're on a mountaintop today. But God, I just pray that your word would minister to the hearts and the souls of your people. Lord, if there's any today who maybe are more familiar with the Moabites than they are with the Israelites in the sense that they are not followers of yours yet, but for whatever reason, here they are today to hear this message. God, I pray that you would invite them into your family, that you would invite them into that redemption and that reconciliation with you, that there is forgiveness of sins, that there is hope for us, and that you can make sense of our lives. God, it's all about you. It's about all about your name being made great. It's about your kingdom going forth. And so I pray as we study this word, Lord, that you would speak clearly to our hearts and you would bring transformation to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in the name of our precious Lord, Jesus Christ, King of Kings, amen.